Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at Amber BJ. Today on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Raman Atri, who is a global authority on speed and is an accelerated performance scientist. He's written over 20 books on the subject, so I was keen to ask Raman about the difference between carefully creating speed in an organisation and making a mad dash decision. As well as this, I wanted to ask him about what he thought the future of education would look like, considering he has done two doctorates, as well as over 100 educational credentials. Here's that conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career, please, just to get us started? Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ellen, for having me at your podcast. Well, my name is Raman, as you know. By training, uh, I'm an engineer and a technology scientist. But at one point of time, I switched career and went into mainstream training and learning domain. Currently, I, I am a training thought leader at a Fortune 500 company. I work on designing learning programs that help workforce learn complex skills at a faster rate. And in parallel, my major work is being a performance scientist and a business researcher. Uh, I'm considered the global authority on speed in learning and performance. I have conducted research for over two decades, I would say. And uh, I also hold uh, two doctorates and have written about 15 books on this particular topic. I do run a research forum. Its name is ExpertX, where I provide executives and business owners with science-based proven strategies to speed up their performance. So my main specialization, as you see, is to provide executives and business owners with the science-based strategies so that they can reorient themselves, their teams, and their organization with a speed-enabling ecosystem, and they can bring that kind of culture in the organization. So that's pretty much kind of, you know, about me, what kind of work I do. There's just so much I want to ask you about. So I thought I'd start with an article that you wrote for our magazine, Ambition, on personality and leadership. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about your take on leadership in general, just to get started. Certainly, Ellen. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So in that article, actually, I raised an argument that leadership is personal again. I learned this fact in a very hard way that leadership actually is very simple, but uh, it did not appear so simple when I started my career uh, many years ago. So at that time, I was given this long list of guidelines on how should I behave, speak, come across and handle things as a leader. So it was all kind of uh, typecast, I would say beforehand. And it was, I can tell you, very intimidating. I felt uh, I wasn't meant to be a leader. But, uh, you know, as I think more about this one, then I say, what is a leader really? To me, a leader is someone who is dependable, reliable, and is always present. And someone who does the right things for the right cause at the right time. So to be a leader, we have to live in this personal space. I typically give this example that a father who provides and supports his family through the tough times, he's a leader. A mother who showers unconditional care with no expectation is a leader. A teacher who teaches you to navigate through the ambiguities of life is also a leader. And uh, probably your friend who guides you on the right path in the times of your, you know, when you can't make a decision, he's also a leader. 
So if you see leadership exists in our homes, so I believe if you could start seeing leadership in the basic things of life, uh, you would recognize your innate leadership traits without following any specific leadership uh, philosophy or uh, textbook framework. So leadership flows out naturally from within without any do or don'ts. So I think that was the major crux of that uh, article. And that's my philosophy of art uh, leadership, that it has to be personal. I love that. I, uh, yeah, we're all people when it comes down to it. The next thing I'd like to ask you about is the book that you've recently written entitled Speed Matters. Can you tell me some of the key themes from that book and maybe why you wrote it? Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah, so I wrote this book specifically for top leaders, CEOs and executives uh, to educate them about how they can go speed savvy for the times to come. So in this book, I, uh, in this book, I have kind of uh, integrated both research insights and business wisdom together. So the book itself is a result of research with 70 world-class organizations. I approached 85 uh, global leaders from seven countries. All these leaders were those for whom speed mattered a lot as a competitive weapon. So we have seen that, you know, how many organizations have struggled to adapt to radical changes forced by this COVID-19. But at the same time, there were many organizations, those who have accelerated uh, their need to transform and fast track their business. So speed, I think, is very important from that angle. So that leadership thought process is what I covered in this book, hoping to make that uh, speed as priority for those who want to stay relevant in the times to come. So in this book, um, I kind of talk about a few things like uh, what type of speed is important to business, why businesses must focus on speed, what are the dangers and negative impacts on businesses if they don't. And I also talked about time to proficiency metrics as a new way to measure and accelerate speed. And also the last part of that book is a leadership thinking process around making speed as a priority in organizations. And why is speed and being speed savvy so important, especially in our current business climate? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Ellen. It's very important. Let me share uh, some research. Deloitte did this one in 2017, not long ago. So they uh, did research with 10,000 executives. So at that time, they found that average employees in various professions, they must redevelop their skill. That means they must learn their skills every 12 months to 18 months. But during pandemic, that time has actually gone down to six months. That means in pandemic, we expected employees to learn new skills within about six, six months period. So now we have to learn those skills so fast, even less than six months sometimes. But my research showed that time to become a master in most of the skills, that's pretty long. For example, you know, I work in semiconductor industry or even in the communication industry, the equipment engineers, they typically take about two to three years to master the skills, what they really need to do their job with. So now we have kind of what I call cash 22 situation. The shelf life of the skills is too short, but time to master is too long. And there's another piece also that uh, is happening in the market right now, that the time to market, that means how much time organization take to launch their new products or services in the market, that's also coming down. It used to be about three years, 
about a decade ago, but now it is about three months. That means every three months, organizations have the need to launch a new service or a product. Customers want faster innovation. Uh, they want new product in their hand faster. So you see uh, on one side, what, what we're saying is very smaller shelf life. On the other side, we are saying that employees have to work on something entirely new every three months. But then in the middle, we are saying that it takes time, very long time, roughly about a year to become master in those skills. But if we don't give that time to our employees, our products, services, they're going to be half-baked. So how are organizations going to stay competitive in this kind of dynamics? So the way I see is the only way possible is to shorten the time to proficiency. That means the time employees take from the date of their hire in a role to reach the mastery level. So getting them to become master uh, faster in a shorter time, that's why I think the speed matters now more than ever to stay relevant in the, this competitive market. I hope I answer your question. That makes a lot of sense. So speed matters and speed is important, but what's the difference between efficiency and speed in this way and kind of a mad dash quick decision? That's a good comment, Ellen, and a beautiful question. And I think you almost kind of caught the essence of the whole book I wrote about. So large majority of leaders actually see speed as getting there first. In that sense, uh, they set very aggressive timelines. They insist on faster task execution or uh, project completion in a shorter time. It gives an impression as if they are moving fast, as if they are responding to customer needs quickly, as if they are well prepared to produce faster. This has some immediate wins, but the workforce constantly finds itself in a race to beat the timelines. They get pressurized. They don't have enough time to learn and master uh, those new skills. So their learning is almost kind of half-cooked. And there are good chances that their outcomes will need to be reworked, which actually adds time to closure. That means initially they looked uh, like they did it very fast, but essentially time to closure. By the time the customer is going to accept it, it becomes very long. So this kind of speed does not lead to a long-term competitive advantage. The speed I advocate is not the speed of doing things fast, but speed of developing our employees, workforce, leaders to a level of a, a performance which can be very fluid to, to that level of consistent, reliable, repeatable mastery where they can deliver the outcomes the first time right. Uh, in the study which I was talking about, the Deloitte study, Worldwide executives, they said that the speed and agilities was, were far more important than efficiency. But still, most organizations still don't learn. They continue to focus on efficiency rather than speed. Efficiency means do more things in less time. So they keep going for this mad rush to accomplish things quick, quickly. That was okay, I think, when uh, we were talking about Industry 3.0. Um, but industry 4.0, the efficiency is the primary goal of all these uh, new technologies like automation, artificial intelligence. If machines can do it faster than humans, more efficiently, why keep chasing the wrong speed for doing the task faster? So I think rather we should be focusing on building those skills of employees at a faster rate 
the things which only humans can do. And I call that uh, thinking process as a speed-savvy leadership thinking. I hope I kind of created a, that distinction between mad rush versus a long-term speed, what we're talking about here. So definitely, that's, yeah, completely answer my question. So just to give a bit more context to our listeners, could you give an example of a speed technique which could be implemented in our listeners' organization? Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, I think I'm going to touch upon that one very briefly. Uh, let me give you an example. So uh, you might have seen those uh, checkout clerks in large stores like Target or Walmart. I'm not sure what are the equivalent brand in UK, but in the US, uh, we got Walmart, Target and all those big stores. Um, so in those uh, checkout stores, those big uh, stores, what you will notice is that while these checkout clerks are talking to you, you won't even realize as a customer when they have completed the transaction. Sometimes they don't even bother to look at the barcode. So they are so proficient, they make no error. But transaction per customer is so fast. Still, they don't come across in any kind of mad rush. So as a customer, chances are that you would walk out pretty pleased with the overall great experience of purchasing. But uh, employees don't reach that kind of performance overnight. It requires a system to train and coach them. So when we teach them the tasks or activities like how to scan the items, how to create bills, how to charge payment, we get them ready to do tasks or activities very well. If the supervisor is standing beside them, um, that guy is possibly measuring them how efficiently they are doing these tasks. So they automatically are going to get that uh, speed in execution because they are being assessed for that. Customer will also be able to notice that they are fast, but they don't find that pleasant smile on their faces. They don't find that conversation or engagement with these uh, checkout clerks. They don't have that effortless interaction. The customer won't see that. And the customer won't walk out with a great buying experience. Even though employees were very fast, they did the task, what they were supposed to do. Because employees in this case don't care too much because they are not trained for that. They are not paid for that. They are not being measured for that. So that's one way of looking at how the madrash comes in, in contact. But when their coaching and training is structured differently, let's say that in, in a training in which they are told that their job is to make customer walk out with great experience. No, it completely changed their perspective. Then they are measured for that experience. They are paid for that experience. At that time, their execution of task and transaction really becomes secondary. So in this kind of approach, the focus of their coaches or trainers is how to develop the checkout clerks to achieve that ability to give a pleasant experience to the customer and how they can shorten that time. For example, if it takes somebody six months to become that kind of checkout clerk who is pleasant uh, interacting with the customer, how we can do that one in three months. So when we shorten that time, employees create a speed in organization which sustains because now they are so proficient uh, at doing their job, their task execution automatically becomes faster. We don't have to do anything additional to make their transaction faster. But what comes out of this one is better customer satisfaction. So how they achieve all this customer satisfaction business benefit just by reorienting is, What's their end goal? Do they want their checkout clerks 
to do the task and activities or do they want their checkout clerks to give the outcome like a great buying experience to the customer? So main major philosophical difference getting the speed is what do you really want out of your employees? So I hope I put that in context for you that uh, how it really works. And I'd like to kind of flip that on its head and ask, I thought I saw you writing about that there was speed accelerators as well. And I was wondering if there's any kind of commonly used counterproductive speed accelerators that might surprise our audience. Certainly, I think I very briefly mentioned that one in the previous context. So I, I can summarize that in one thought. And it is a, an overemphasis on skills and training across the board. Now, you might get surprised that, uh, you know, training is our first line of defense. And I am saying here, training itself is a speed blocker. Training is a trap. In my research, I found that most leaders said that the training, ill-designed training, a badly designed training was their number one speed blocker as opposed to speeding up the performance, which is the usual expectations uh, business managers have from the training. In fact, uh, training slowed down the speed. On top of that one, training had very little contribution to speeding up the performance of employees. In, in my perspective, all training does is give employees some initial readiness, give them some knowledge, skill to start sitting on the desk so they can start doing some of the tasks in the job but it does not give them the speed to mastery. And in fact, most of the training interventions, uh, those are in, in a corporate setting, those are pretty academic style, classroom oriented or uh, very instructor led. Many times those are very content focused. So when corporations do that kind of training, it takes an employee away from the context. So problem what happens is when you take the employees away from the context, when you take them away from your, the job they are supposed to do, they, we are already slowing them down. So most organizations leave employees at the mercy of a training department. Uh, I'm a, uh, you know that I'm a training leader at a Fortune 500 corporation. I manage uh, world's best training center. I can say very confidently that training departments are very ill-equipped to develop workforce for speed. If training is not giving our employees realistic performance and not adding to the speed, then why do it? Instead of training, we should be doing more performance support technologies, knowledge repositories, or on-demand mobile learning, and things like that. Because when people can get the information at the time of need, when they can pull and learn the thing when they need it, how much they need it, guess what happens? The, their learning actually become much faster they produce outcome at a much faster rate. But that thought process does not come very easy because uh, employee development has been made all training dependent, mostly. So the whole concept is rooted in the premise that more skills, more training mean more readiness. But I think um, giving more skills to employees would take longer time. And uh, that's where organizations get it wrong. Many of them still keep pushing for more training wrongly. And the real strategy should be to give them the skills at a faster rate and figure out a strategy. But the organization has said, uh, as I said, they typically depend upon this strategy of giving them more training. So giving more training is already kind of slowing them down. So I think that's the key counterproductive 
um, speed blocker, which people don't realize it's slowing them down. But in my research, it was shown very clearly that that's the number one thing that doesn't work right in organizations. I hope that uh, I gave you the answer, but at the same time, I know this answer is going to surprise many of the people in the audience. I'd quite like to see if that kind of premise works in the educational world, which obviously um, at Amber we're in. So you have two doctorates and over 100 international educational credentials. And I was wondering if you think, having done all of these educational credentials as well as degrees, that you think micro-credentials are the future of education and are a good way to speed up learning? Great question, Ellen. Uh, yeah, I think for most of portion of my life I have been kind of uh, on a receiving side. I have been receiving a lot of education. I have been through a lot of certifications and credentials, as you said. But at the same time, I also have been on the giving side. I have uh, uh, worked as a adjunct lecturer or uh, teaching faculty for several institutions. So I have seen the best and the worst on both sides. My uh, take on this one is that the universities are established institutions. They have uh, you know, taken several centuries to create a standardized set of education path uh, in which we can compare Apple versus Apple. But in the recent times, what has happened is some celebrities or influencers, they have advocated as underplayed the value of formal educational credentials. So I guess that's where, you know, we are seeing the rise of these micro-credentials. But in my perspective, the real value of micro-credentials is questionable because as a hiring manager, I can't compare and I can't say if a given micro-credential is designed for the skills required at the workplace for the job what I'm hiring for. A good micro-credential needs to teach students how to produce outcomes or deliverables um, you know, uh, for the job and handle unpredictable situations and other professional challenges. So skill-based credentials are the future of education. But I guess what we lack is a moderation agent or a universal standardization of these micro-credentials. Some qualified institution that need to play a central role who can specify how a series of micro-credentials means a certain skill level for a job. Uh, for example, let's say that I want to do a qualification of being an IT manager awarded by a university. So it needs to be a moderated system that allows me to choose credentials based on my interests and goals. And certain combinations should earn me final formal uh, qualifications in tiers, like uh, IT manager level one, IT manager level two. So when we do uh, such kind of measurable quantification, we'll be able to change the future of education. So such a system would probably give a choice to learners to choose a mix of or combination of credentials. So they could skip what they already know. The overall journey will be much shorter that way. So it could be one potential way to create the accelerated learning program. But I guess it is still a little bit far away um, you know, from reality. Totally, but I completely see the educational sphere kind of going that way. So to kind of wrap up and to kind of connect what we've been talking about in the podcast, um, I was wondering if you could 
say how business schools could use your techniques in in order to kind of accelerate student learning? I guess I got a lot of thoughts on this particular one, I would say, because uh, uh, somehow this is uh, the area I have worked a lot. I mean, uh, most of my degrees have been in business from different business schools. I did my two doctorates from uh, uh, two different business schools and I have uh, three master's degrees and my interaction with the business schools have been quite a lot. So I have a these good thoughts as well as bad thoughts from both angles. You know, uh, the learning fast is, is with reference to a goal. Is the goal to master the content? Is the goal to master the skill that someone can use in the job? That makes the difference. I would have to say that most business schools have good intentions making qualified managers who have the skills to go out and do the manager's job successfully. So they design curriculum to achieve it. So how well do they meet that intention? Uh, I think I will answer that uh, you know, question probably from two angles, one from the teaching perspective and one from the student learning perspective. I'm going to give a typical example of a project management course. The usual approach is that we follow a project management book as a subject and teach it as a sequence of chapters. Let's see that as a teacher, I need to teach students the skill to schedule crashing. Crashing schedule or schedule crashing is one of the topic uh, uh, that uh, project management typically need. So, which is very critical skill for project managers. So as a teacher, I teach it as a chapter that is loaded with the terms, concepts, theory, examples, and things like that. So in the end, I'll give them some case studies or scenarios to work through. That's extremely long way to teach it because people have to memorize things linearly. So that learning is actually far slower. We don't realize it, but it actually goes very, very slow. Now, after getting through that one, do they have enough skills to become or act like a project manager next day? I think the answer is probably no. So how does the project manager actually work in organizations? They attend high-pressure meetings with their stakeholders. Executives will never say, go and crash the schedule. Nobody uses that kind of terms at all in the actual work environment. All they learned in the school vanishes out of the window. So despite coming from the best project management institution globally, these project managers have to learn the field way of doing the project management. That means how the project management is actually done at the workplace. So. What we just did in the, them in that traditional course, we subject them to extremely long cycle of uh, institutional learning, where they spend a lot of time mastering project management uh, in school ways. And then they go on to the workplace. Then they try to master the project management in an executive way. So once project managers are in that situation, they don't take paper and pen to work out the things. They, they got automated software. They got tools to do it. There is artificial intelligence to suggest them the best options. But ultimately, they use their common sense, their intuitions, gut feeling, and analytic observations to come up with a solution. As I said a while ago, leadership is personal. So these, uh, you know, um, if we have a five project manager assigned to a given situation, they probably will come with five different plans. And each of their plans will be valid. So I guess, uh, you know, there is a disconnect between how we teach them in business schools versus how the work is actually assigned to them uh, in most organizations. 
So from that angle, I think only way is to bring the context before the content. Content is no longer the king. Context is the king these days. So now how do I bring the context first? I start my chapter by bringing all students into one full-blown, carefully set up simulator scenarios where I get uh, some people to role play as aggressive executives. Maybe I, I will ask some people to play the role of uh, harsh customers. Then I bring up the situation for students, telling them, you are a project manager in such and such organization. A project is running late by say 10 days and you have 10, you are already 10K over budget. So I am oversimplifying just for the sake of this example, but I would give them all the details of that scenario. How would you bring the project back on track? You have three hours to figure it out. I leave them to work in the teams, check the internet, ask each other, call a friend, seek out guidance from an experienced project manager, use artificial intelligence tools, work out a practical solution and present to those tough role-playing stakeholders. I don't care how they find it, but at the end, each one of them will find out a solution or an answer and present it to the customer and get hammered for their rational thing and their thinking process. So imagine the intensity of reality in that kind of learning. At the end of the day, I will tell them to read some important terms and concepts which they already applied, but didn't know in academic terms. Now, the question will be, will these guys be successful project managers very next day? I think answer would be to some extent, yes. They would have already tasted that intensity of being a project manager. So that's what we call accelerator learning. So now bringing context before content is a revolutionary technique. It means teach them the way executives assign them the work, not the way examiners ask the question. But it's a large system change, I know, that we are to, if we are to produce successful project managers they, who are ready for the job, we're going to need to change a lot of things. Not all teaching staff would be comfortable with that, but that's the proper answer. But I'm also aware that in academic business school setting, it is mostly content. People got to pass some exam, get some grades, need to show that they master the content. So my golden advice would be a middle path that while you're trying all sort of flipped classroom techniques as a teaching faculty, which possibly don't work at all, we know the reality. Try this one. Try flipping the context and content. That means bring the context first and then cover the content. You will be amazed at the amount of acceleration you will get because of, uh, as a business school, it will make you look really good in front of top employers, not just the top examiners. So I guess I gave you a pretty long answer to that question, but that's my thought process that if our teaching faculties, our professors, our business schools, uh, uh, staff, they bring the context before content, it's going to really make the business school look good because their business manager, those who are going to go into those organizations, they are going to be right on the job almost on day one. I hope I answered that question finally, Ellen. No, I love that. Um, it sounds like... Yeah, giving them experience of what they'll be doing and also it sounds like a really fun way to learn an engaging way to learn which is the best way of learning i'm afraid that's all i've got time for but um thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it and um yeah some great answers thank you so much ellen it was my pleasure to be in conversation with you thank you so much to raman for being on the podcast 
If you'd like to read his article for Ambition, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition. And make sure to subscribe to the Ambition podcast.